in this episode with Hugh Hutchinson. And so long short of it, I did a deal with them. That's kind of the way I look at it. Um, one of my earlier deals, I suppose. Um, <laughs> as well as have a really good career, I, I went through um, from second lieutenant right up through to senior captain uh, and did eight years. No, mm -hmm. so I'm really doing, I'm, I'm combining this with trying to ski for Britain. Unless he said, well, that's on you. <laughs> you see how that goes. Um, he was supportive, but certainly not. And my mum, there weren't parents that were going to back me to the hill and give up their lives to try and allow me to ski on the international circuit. They looked at it very much as a... a, a, as, as a a sport that you would do for a while, and even if you were quite good at it, it, it it's not your life, it's not your future, it's not your career. Was That's it, how, how they saw it, so it was a sideline for them. Then was this something that you were passionate about? Yeah, I was really passionate about it. I wanted to, to give it a really good go and see where I could take it. I simply knew I had to beat everyone else. I woke up in the safety name, and I couldn't feel my legs, so it was a bit concerning. Mm. Yeah, so thanks, Hugh, for uh, being on the show and giving up your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, you've had a fascinating career. Uh, you are one of, if not Britain's best mogul skier. Am I right in, in saying that still to this I day? I, I think I still have the best male <laughs> Olympic yeah. results and probably World yeah. Cup results yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you are... Got a business career, started businesses, been involved in different businesses, different organisations, public and private sector, and um, you know, speaker on the circuit, motivational speaker, and so there's there's a lot we can um, talk about and get into today, which would be great. And so you know, life's work is really about um, looking at life, your work, and legacy, and. Uh, the reason why we ask people like yourself for you to come on is so that we can learn from you and uh, your lessons along the way and uh, discover some wisdom worth sharing. So uh, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, look, if, if we can, what I'd like to do is, is, is ask you about um, where you've come from to where you've, where you've been and what, how you've got to where you are today. So if we can start early on as uh, you know, as a, as a child, who was Hugh, and uh, what kind of character? You know, where were you? Um, where were you brought up? What was what was it like? What was going on for you then that shaped maybe who you became as an athlete and as a businessman and speaker? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Steve, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, and um, I don't know about wisdom. 
certainly have a bit of experience, but part of that is, of course, just being the age that I'm at. You, mm. you get the wrong side of 50 and you think, gosh, <laughs> how did I get here? But um, to answer your question about my childhood, I grew up in central Scotland um, near a city called Dunfermline that's about half, a mile, half, half an hour drive north of Edinburgh. And then just north of that, in the local hills, there's a little place called Dollar. And I grew up there. Um, my father uh, was a businessman. He ran a small land development company and a fleet of trucks, actually. And they were based in Dunfermline. And my mother was a physiotherapist. So I don't know if we'd call that a classic sort of middle class UK, Scottish family. But um, uh, my father had a real belief in in giving his children a good educa education. And there's quite a good school in Dollar, uh, which is why we lived in Dollar rather than Dunfermline. And um, so I had the benefit of going to a pretty good uh, school, uh, both from an academic standpoint, but also a, a sporting uh, standpoint. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the fact that it was a small village in the hills of Scotland, not an awful lot else to do, was one of the reasons uh, Everyone did a lot of sport. Mm. Um, but I did reasonably well academically growing up, and I got really into sport, all sorts of sports, mm. um, from a bit of rugby in the winter to athletics in the summer, and everything from swimming and shooting to, to skiing, which is the one that I took on um, uh, as my single serious focus mm. uh, when I left school and went to university. Yeah. yeah. So what, what made you decide on skiing was there a particular we, we like was that a standout thing that you were good at or was there opportunities in that space you know why why skiing yeah i mean scotland is not well britain indeed isn't really known as a as a, a winter sports nation but scotland does have a few good mm. uh, winter resorts and um where i lived was close enough to do it a bit at school i mean not not too seriously but we had a uh, alpine race team at school which I was a member of, and um, family used to go on holiday once or twice a year skiing. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I took to it, um, really enjoyed it, uh, and I think I was uh, reasonably naturally talented at it. But when I went to university, I, I went to university in Aberdeen, and um, uh, there's a ski resort called Glenshee, which is not too far, I can't remember, it's about an hour from Aberdeen, but... Um, and while the weather wasn't always great in Scotland, it's not a bad little ski resort. And um, so I ended up skiing for the university, and, and it went quite well. I got quite good in alpine skiing, and I ended up going to the World Student Games. And um, So the sporting side of my university life went pretty well. I, I, my degree was in land economics. Right. Um, so I did that and got my degree. But um, when I got to my final year and thinking about leaving, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to use my degree and go into um, land development or chartered surveying or the sort of route that it would naturally take mm. you to. Mm. And um, so at that point, I, <coughs> I thought about giving it a go competing internationally uh, full time mm. after I left university in, in the ski circuit um, but it's at best a semi-professional sport and it's not an easy thing to do full-time it's mm. an expensive sport to mm. do um, 
And so I had been considering um, a career in the army, uh, the sh short service. And I'd been speaking to various uh, regiments and parts of the army, and one of them was the Royal Engineers. Mm. And they were pretty keen that I joined them on a short service. And they said, look, at that point, I was decently good at skiing, but you never know where you might go. But they said, look, if, you, if you're in the national team and you start doing well, especially if you have an look at the Olympics, we'll give you all the time you need to train and all the time that the British team need. And so long and short of it, I did a deal with them. That's kind of the way I look at it. Um, one of my earlier deals, I suppose. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that seemed pretty good because it would give me uh, quite a fun career. I mean, there's always the risk if you join the army that you could end up operational somewhere like Afghanistan or, um, or Iraq. Uh, and, and while I had some really good tours, uh, I didn't end up in, in uh, operational scenarios like that. But they were, they were true to their word. And um, as I progressed in my ski career, they just gave me all the time that I needed. Mm. And uh, it, it allowed me to do it and to achieve what mm. I did in, mm. in skiing, as well as have a really good career. I, I went through um, from second lieutenant right up through to senior captain uh, and did eight years in the Royal Engineers. Mm. Can, I, can I go back a, a little bit of a step? Um, you, your degree seemed to align with what your father's business was. Is that, was that a kind of intentional thing? Um, was that was that the plan at some point in time for you to kind of work it's with that? It's a good question, and the answer is no. So, um, I think part of it was as I went through schools, there were certain subjects that I was quite good at, and there were certain subjects that I wasn't great at. So, um, again, this is showing my age because back then you you did certain exams that used to be called O grades. I don't even know if they're mm. still called O grades, but that's about age of 16 and then you do we did hires we didn't do a levels in Scotland we did hires mm -hmm. and um, uh, so you, you, you tend to do more um, subjects at age of 16 and, and, I, and I was you know reasonably good at English and geography and economics and um, uh, maths and even did art but I struggled more with sciences I did, mm -hmm. I did um, physics biology and chemistry but they were tougher. And then so when I looked at what um, the subjects I was going to do at that more senior level, the ones that I was doing quite well at were, were particularly um, geography and economics. And sub like, subjects like that lent themselves quite well towards mm -hmm. uh, land economics. But it, it, it is interesting. I'll never forget going and talking to a career advisor like so many of us, I'm sure, Sure did, and, and basically he was sort of saying, right, well, looking at what you're doing and you're, you know, here's a list of things that you could do at university that you, you, you'd be able to get into university for. And I'm quite good at knowing quickly what I didn't want to do. <laughs> so we narrowed the list down <laughs> quite quite severely, and literally I didn't even know that much about land economics. I mean, when he said, oh, well, you know, your geography and your maths and your this and your that, you'd lend yourself quite, quite well to land economics. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a part of me that thought, yeah, well, Dad's business does a bit of land development. There's a good fit there. Mm. Um, although, funnily enough, the company still runs and I'm the director of the company. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I w 
that wasn't really the reason. It was more about it was more about fit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, what did like your your parents, you know, going off into the army? Was that something that they were pleased about? And and the skiing sort of career at that point in time, you know, when you made that decision to go that way, was that did you have support for that or? I think the army very much so. My dad was a Royal Marine. Right. Uh, and in fact, my older brother, he was a Royal Marine officer as well. So um, you could say I'm the black sheep of the family. They weren't very impressed with me joining the <laughs> Royal Engineers. But, but um, no, I think, I think that was great. And, um, but I'll never forget my dad saying to me when I said, oh, I'm really doing, I'm, I'm combining this with trying to ski for Britain. To be honest, he said, well, that's on you. <laughs> you see how that goes. Um, he was supportive, but certainly not. And my mum, they weren't parents that were going to back me to the hill and give up their lives to try and allow me to ski on the international circuit. Right. Okay. So that was something you'd have to do on your own. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a bit of a question mark around belief about whether you, what you could achieve or what was what was that? You know, like with not having that backing you to the hilt, did they not see that as a, a, a good prospect or opportunity at that time? I think it was more about the fact that they they looked at it very much as a, a, a as, as a a sport that you would do for a while, and even if you were quite good at it, it, it it's not your life, it's not your future, it's not your career. And that's yeah. how, how they saw it. So it was a sideline for them. Yeah. Okay. For me, it was maybe a bit more than that. So maybe a bit more, or was it, well, you know, how did your feelings contrast with with theirs about this? Then was this something that you were passionate about? Yeah, I was really passionate about it. I wanted to to give it a really good go and see where I could take it. But having said that, like anybody who who um, gets involved in a sport and tries to take it to a high performance level, you never know where you're going to go. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe one or two people do if they're already world junior champions at sixteen and eighteen. Mm. And, they're pretty sure that they're going to be yeah. top few in the world, even at senior level. But I think that's extremely rare. I think for most people, if you're going to give it a shot, you don't know even if you're going to qualify for an Olympics or a mm. one world championships or mm. what's going to happen. Never mind where you'll end up in the world and what title you win and how you get on overall as a career. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in this because obviously I've not. Uh, not an athlete, certainly not a successful athlete anyway as a, as a young fella, but um, I'm interested in it because I've got a daughter who's an athlete um, and trying to sort of tap into the, the psyche of someone who's been there, done that. She's got Olympic aspirations. Um, you know, that's her focus. That's what she's passionate about. Um, you know, was, was going to the Olympics like the, the goal, the pinnacle for you? Was that, was that what, you know, what were the drivers for you and the sport? What did you want to achieve or get out of it? Good question because lots of sports are different. There's a lot mm. of sports that aren't involved in the Olympics. Um, there's some sports that's not the pinnacle. Mm. But certainly for skiing, both alpine skiing and mogul skiing, which is a freestyle discipline, um, they're in the Olympic program. And that's, that is the top level. I mm. mean, you have the World Cup circuit that runs every year. Below that, they have feeder circuits in Europe and North America. But World Cup is the is the is the top level that happens every year, and then you have World Championships um, every two years, mm. and the Olympics is once every four years. 
and the Olympics is seen as the pinnacle, if, if not one of the top pinnacles. Mm. Um, I guess to have a successful career, you want to do well in World Cup, you want to go to World Champs, but yeah, you want to you go to the Olympics. You want to be an Olympian, don't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So that was obviously what, what was driving you was to be successful. And like going to the Olympics would be success for you. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that what you were, how you saw things? Yeah, again, it's a great question. I mean, how do you define success? Um, I often think about that. I sometimes joke with people when they ask me about the Olympics. I say, well, a bit careless, really, because I went to two. I didn't win a medal either. <laughs> but, um, yeah, obviously super proud to, to have done it and to achieve what I have. But I had to do another thing keep the army happy I had to do mm. I had to ski in the army championships and the combined services championships combined services is army versus navy versus air force but there's an international element to that as well it's a big event and um, so I did that for three years in a row and then once I got into the Olympic squads they said okay you don't need to do it anymore because you know you just can't do everything mm. um, and it is quite a big commitment but I did I did that for three years and that mattered to me and, I, and I, I was army champion three years in a row. I was um, uh, combined services champion three years in a row. I was Commonwealth combined services champion three years in a row. Mm. And that means a lot to me as well. I mean, it's not, mm. as, it's not as big or as international as World Cup and World Champs and yeah. Olympics. But to me, that's still, that's still a hell of an achievement. Absolutely. Yeah. To yeah. do it three, three years in a row, um, all three of them. Mm. So, can you? Yeah, I, I know, look, I'm going to come to the Olympics once. I'm not bypassing that. <laughs> I'll come to that, but I, I'm still hanging around before that, if you like. Um, and just, if we can, I'd, I'd like to really sort of tap into um, the mindset, if you like, of an athlete, because I think that uh, you know that whether, whatever success looks like, being determined and working out how to achieve something. Is applicable to any aspect of life, um, and obviously in, in an athlete's life, we we can see that unfold, uh, particularly in, in in the sport that that you were in and at the level that you were at. Uh, we can watch it on TV; we can see it. Um, but what goes into that, you know, from a from an athlete's point of view, um, when you realise at some point in time, hey, look, I don't think I'm good enough actually to to make this and go there and have that goal of getting to the Olympics what was that like what did it take to get to that level what level of commitment what were the um, what were the sacrifices you had to make and what how did you create that focus it's a great question and it's something that I um, I talk a bit about you mentioned I do motivational speaking corporate speaking and quite often that is what people ask. That's what they want to know about. And, and it's not a simple answer. But what I would say is that you need a number of things. To have some of them isn't enough. You've really got to have all of them. Um, so first of all, you've got to have that desire. You've got to want to do it. Um, but you've also got to, to have a real commitment. 
I know so many people who say to me, oh, I was quite good at this, or I was quite good at this, but I did this, and, I got, and then I got distracted, or then I, you know, for whatever reason, they only went so far. To, to get to the top level, the really top level in any sport, and certainly to go to the Olympics, takes a huge commitment and a lot of time. Um, in fact, I, I think, I don't, I don't know who said this, but you often hear banded around that the average Olympic athlete needs to do at least 10,000 hours of training. I didn't add up how many hours I did, so I don't know if that's true or not. But um, you, you have to do a, a huge amount of training and be very focused. Um, you have to sacrifice a lot. You know, I used to get up in the morning and go for a run. And... Um, and then I would do training sessions throughout the day, as well as when I was in the army doing other stuff. Um, if, if I was on snow, you'd be training on snow for four hours maybe a day. Uh, and then one of the things that surprises people a lot is I would say, well, you know, after dinner I might sit and do video, video review of myself or other people competing or technical analysis or whatever. But then I used to go for a run before I went to bed. <laughs> so, you know, it's about, it's about training at an extremely intense and high level. Mm. Um, but then you need more than that. So again, that's just another element. I think one of the important things and one of the things that was very relevant for me is you need to be able to take opportunities. You need to be able to make huge decisions. So uh, I started off in alpine skiing and there's four disciplines in alpine skiing. Slalom, which is the turnier one through all the mm -hmm. problems. Giant slalom, bigger turns, super G, um, which is sort of a cross between giant slalom and downhill was kind of the one from top of the mountain to the bottom, going 70, 80, 90 miles per hour. Um, and, and the guys who do downhill are big guys. They need to be really big and powerful. And I'm not a big guy. Um, I'm fairly slim, and, but I've got very quick reaction. So I was much better at the turning or slalom. And I was a pretty good slalom skier. Um, but I ended up changing sport from alpine to mobile skiing. Now you might say, well, why did you do that? And the reason was that I got spotted by a couple of foreign coaches. So I, I used to base myself in the, in the summer in a, in a place called Team in France. And the reason I did that is it has a glacier that you can train on in the summer on pretty good snow conditions mm -hmm. on really good slopes. And I was out there one summer training slalom, but you, you don't always train through the, the gates, so you do a lot of free skiing. I used to love skiing down through the, the moguls, and a lot of the national mogul teams trained there because they've got great moguls. And um, two coaches kind of had a word with me and also had a word with the British Ski Federation and said, I think you're in the wrong sport. I think you should look at mogul skiing you've got the natural build, clearly got the reactions, you've got the natural ability to it, we think you could be good. And um, so I thought about this pretty carefully, and I spoke to the British Ski Federation, as they were called at the time, you know, British Snow Sports. Or whatever. Um, and I ended up going to a training camp with uh, the British mobile team. Mm. So that they could have a look at me, and I could have a look at the thing and and I, I have to say I thought 
at the time, I looked at the guys who were skiing, a couple of guys skiing the World Cup for Britain at the time, and I thought, yeah, I can be better than you in a hurry. <laughs> and, yeah, I made a huge decision, huge call, to give it a go and take that opportunity and to commit to it. Mm. So it's that commitment again. Mm. Um, and look, we could talk about this all day, and, and I often do talk about it in depth because there are a whole number of other things that you need as I say, so everything from the right nutrition to a bit of luck because I have a, had a lot of friends who had serious injuries and missed Olympics or, um, yeah, so we want to try and uh, have as few injuries as possible in a sport that mm. is uh, pretty hard on your body. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a whole package and you need the whole package. Yeah, I... Yeah, I, I, and look, I'd happily talk about it all day because I find it fascinating. And I think that's, I, I do relate this stuff, even though it's um, completely different and it's not the same level of achievement. But I do relate this kind of, if you like, holistic approach to things and knowing that this is not just a look thing. You, you mentioned look, uh, you know, there's an element of that obviously involved in all sorts of things, but um, maybe you create your own look by doing all of the right things or, you know, as well as you possibly can. And I think that that does apply to other aspects of life. So I, I, I'm going to ask you some questions a bit more about that, how that relates to the rest of your life shortly. But before I do, I just want to go back and, and ask, pick up on a couple of points um, you made. When you were talking about the level of trip training and commitment, um, you know, you were running morning and night and you were training for several hours in between and obviously like you've just alluded to there's all sorts of things you know constraints around nutrition and eating the right things and, and looking after yourself and all those different things um i suppose as you get further along your um career towards being in the olympic squad you you've got a lot more around you that you know um there's other people telling you what you need to do and how you need to do it and maybe advising you I'm assuming that's the case. It might be, I might be wrong. But I, I guess earlier in your career, and maybe the difference between people who get so far and say, oh, I got distracted and went off somewhere else, and those who actually get success like you have, is the, is the realisation of what it takes. And So how did you like understand what it would take? Did you just... I, I don't imagine for one minute you just happened to do the right things by luck. You know, was it a more kind of strategic approach? Did you get some advice? Did you have other people around you? How did you know what it would take to get there? How did you give yourself the best chance of success, I suppose, really is what I'm asking. Well, you make a good point in that towards well, not the end of your career, but as, as it happens, it tends mm -hmm. to be. But as, as you progress, as you get... Once you get to the Olympic squad level, uh, certainly in Britain, you do. You've got you've got really good support around you, and that's another thing I talk about quite a lot because skiing is often seen as an individual sport. You know, once you leave the start gate and you go out on the piste, whether it's the slalom piste or whether it's a mogul piste, you're on your own. Mm. But getting you there is a, is a real it's a real team effort, mm. and I have to say that again, I was really lucky in that space because. Um, had a really good manager in the team. Um, we had a really good national team coach. We were allowed to 
we were allowed to influence or or at least look at who our technical yeah. coach could be. Mm. Um, and, and in fact, we, we managed to get the guy that we wanted, who was an ex-world champion, a French guy that you know, a lot of people wanted. The Germans tried to get him and all sorts of people. And we got him. Um, and uh, and then and then we had good support through the Olympic system with nutritionists and psychologists mm. and I mean not not crazy amounts because it was pretty semi professional at the time it's mm. it's not like some of the big sports today but it was still really helpful really helpful so you had that support around you mm. but earlier on yeah you're right you didn't so it had to come from you you had to make a lot of those decisions just like the one I, I mentioned in terms of deciding to change from slalom to... That was my decision. Okay, a couple of coaches said, hey, you know, mm. have a look at it. And I, I did have a uh, conversation with um, the, the British uh, Ski Federation at the time, but a lot of it has to come from you. But again, you also asked me, how, how do you know what you need? Well, in some ways, that's quite simple. You, you've got to do what you have to do as an individual to get the results that you want. And, you know, so it's no different when I mentioned the Army Championships. In, in, um, in Alpine, as I said, there are four disciplines, and I knew I wasn't that great at two of them. But I had to do really well in those two disciplines as well as hopefully knock it out of the park and slalom mm. to, to win the overall title. And so, guess what? I had to train mm. a lot, downhill and super G, to win the overall title. Mm. And it's simple. If I hadn't done it, I wouldn't have won it. Mm. And that's how I knew. I simply knew I had to beat everyone else. And to do that, you've got to be better than them. And how do you know what it takes to be better than them. If, if I mean, I suppose it's the yeah, million-dollar question, really, isn't it? But it was like, you know, at what, at what point do you decide this is how many hours I have to put in, this is what I have to focus on, this is how strong I have to be. It's, you know, like, it's those kind of things. How do you, uh, and, and, you know, relating this back to a kind of business kind of analogy, it's really about how, you know, what's determining in strategy and then executing it. You know, you, you can only kind of, I suppose, um, give it your best guess about what strategy will deliver the outcomes that you want. And obviously that's always a working motion and you, you adjust it. But, you know, did you set that for yourself, your strategy of what I'll need to do and put in place in order to get to the point where I'll get more support because I'm now achieving at a certain level? Yeah. So... Skiing has a lot of different factors and things that influence it compared to certain other sports. So mm -hmm. I always remember um, listening to a, a guy who was an Olympic swimmer and he'd gone to the Olympics and he was two seconds off a medal at the Olympics. And so he thought, right, well, I'm going to have to be two seconds faster um, at the next level, possibly a bit faster than that because mm -hmm. the sport will progress. Mm -hmm. So let's say two and a half seconds. And that seemed huge at the time because it just, the margins are very small. And he thought, how on earth am I going to be you know, two and a half seconds? <laughs> I'm just 
can do it. Now, the thing with swimming is, what you've got to do is train in terms of strength, technique, and the, the pool's pretty similar every time you're in it. Mm. And so you've got to put the hours in, and you've got to um, turn that strength and technique into, into, fast, into faster times. Mm. And he said what really helped him was breaking it down. So he said, well, two and a half seconds seemed huge. He had four years to do it. So that's only just over half a second a year. And that seemed slightly more achievable. And so he broke it down into training packages throughout the year to achieve those half seconds. Now the problem with skiing is, as I say, it's not that simple. Because you can train and train and train until you're super fast, technically very good, super strong, but you don't need very much to go wrong on any given day. Mm. And you could be out the course and crashed, never mind not doing very well. Mm. So as well as trying to um, be the best you can on any given day, you have to ski to the conditions on the course in every competition you're in, changes. Mm. Um, if we take mogul courses, there's maybe 10 World Cups a year. Um, you really only expect to finish eight of them. Chances are you're gonna you're gonna crash it too. Um, so you have to take all of that sort of stuff into account. And when do you really push? When do you go at hundred percent? When do you go at ninety eight, ninety nine? Um, I, I always remember once turning up in, in a World Cup in France and the conditions were just shocking. Really, it was really tough and icy and the, the, the weather wasn't great. The visibility wasn't great. And um, I just, I kept watching guys just crashing out. And I thought, I'm just going to come back off a couple of percent. And, uh, and this was quite early on in my career. I put down one of my best runs ever. It was just steady. It wasn't that fast. wasn't that great. But ended up 12th. Um, I think it ended up 17th or 12th when I got there. Um, so you have to adapt. Mm. Now at that stage in my career, that was that was the best result I could have gotten on that day. I wasn't going to get in the top 10 mm. at that point. So yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff you have to take into account all the time. And of course another thing is you mentioned about being flexible. And I, I think this is very true in business. You've got to be really flexible. And in skiing, one of the things I learned was quite often you're going to be competing with pain and injury. And so you've got to manage that. Mm. But also you are, the chances are, something fairly big will happen and you, you'll miss events, you'll miss um, maybe even part of the season. And that, that happened to me. I uh, had a really bad crash at the end of um, one season in Germany and I, I actually put three of my vertebrae out for alignment and cracked one of them and ended up, you know, being, I actually, I woke up in the safety net and I couldn't feel my legs, so it was a bit concerning. Mm -hmm. And I was stuck in an ambulance and taken down to Munich Hospital. Anyway, luckily enough, um, no damage to the spinal cord. Um, they realigned the vertebrae and, and the bones healed relatively quickly, but I really struggled. And I remember coming back the following season, having had 
um, half a year off and done a bit of training, but not nearly as much as I'd want to come back into the World Cup. And I really struggled pre-Christmas. Four World Cups just was way behind where I had finished off the season before. That's hard. So That's hard psychologically as well as physically. I was just going to say, I was, I was going to leave a question. Yeah, so when you say you were struggling, was it physically getting back to the level of fitness and, and agility you had, or was it uh, mental fitness and psychological kind of side of, you know? It was both. Or both, yeah. both yeah. So I knew that I wasn't as strong. I actually had to wear a special Kevlar back brace just to protect the, mm. um, the spine where I damaged it. And, and that caused dif- discomfort. And, uh, but then it was the fact that, you know, I'd been getting results in the 20s at the end of the season before, and suddenly I was, there's usually 80 guys in, in, in World Cup, and I was back in midfield at mm. 40th. And, you, you know, that's hard. Is this, sorry, is this, is this like post the Olympics, or is this what, what, what it was, point it was after one, but it, so it's between between the Olympics. And so, and, and I had the same thing as the, the swimmer that I told you about. You know, when I went to my first Olympics, I was pretty chuffed. You know, 70 odd guys at the Olympics, and I was 25th, um, and uh, top Brit, uh, four Brits, and you know, only on my second year in World Cup. Mm. So, part of me thought, well, great. And another part of me thought, well, there's quite a way to go from here to top 10, never mind a medal. <laughs> um, so you, you, you can see what you've got to achieve. Mm. Uh, the further you go in up world rankings, the better you get, the tougher it gets. Mm. It's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. Back then, was anyone helping you with the kind of, you know, mental well-being and psychology of sport i mean these days it's you know it, it's in every sport right? it's 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 well known about it and we're promoting it more and more and thankfully it's we've got more knowledge of it and it's uh, more prevalent but back then was that something that was available to you you know like recovering from an injury like that and get trying to get back to form um you know, i'm also thinking you, you've used the analogy of your friend who was a swimmer and you know like you said to your skier you're not necessarily alone as in you've got a team of people helping you get there but on the day it's you're it and you know it'd be good to hear from you about how mentally tough you need to be to be able to do that knowing all that you know you know but is was there was there assistance with that was there anything available at that point in your career there was a bit but not very much so, you know, we're talking a while ago now. Yeah. And um, today, uh, high-performance programs in most countries, particularly here in New Zealand, is a very good high-performance sports mm-hmm. program. Um, and, you know, all these areas now have more support. Mm-hmm. But the, the mental and psycho- psychological um, support was pretty limited. Uh, we, we would get some guy who was studying at university came along an Olympic program and you know, might spend a few days with you on a training camp and mm. talk to everyone in the team but it was pretty limited and I think back then particularly a lot of it really had to come from you um, again when you asked me what it takes 
my view was it, it took everything. So I would do, you know, I was looking at everything that would give me the slightest percentage benefit. Mm. And I um, read about a guy who was a uh, sports psychologist. Um, but he did sport, but what he called it sports hypnosis. He did hypnosis mm. on people. And he got a bit of a profile because he um, he was working with an Irish boxer. Forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was going for um, a world title fight and he was the underdog. But he, he, he did that classic boxing thing. He played the media game quite well. And he said, oh, I'm using a hypnotist. And I know, you know, I know I'm going to win. I, I know in my mind, I can see it's going to happen. And anyway, he did win. <laughs> so <laughs> and I thought, well, that's quite interesting. So I tracked this guy down. But I mean, completely off my own bet. Mm. And I went and saw him. And it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Because the first thing he told me, he said, well, I didn't hypnotize that guy here. And I can't hypnotize you. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the problem with people like you is you're so focused, I simply can't hypnotize you. I can hypnotize a lot of people, but I can't hypnotize you. Uh-huh. Yeah. But what I can do is I can work with you, l- learn about your sport, because I don't know that much about it, but look to achieve you having the right focus when you go out that start game, you're on your own. Mm. And I have to say I was really impressed with him because he spent a lot of time understanding everything I had to go through and all the training and how it worked, how skiing worked. Mm. And we worked and worked and worked. And then what he would do is he, he, he I guess, similar process to putting someone into a hypnotic state. But so dark room, talk very quietly to you and he'd get you into a very deep relaxed state where you could completely focus on what he was talking about and then he would talk to you and I'd do these sessions with him and then he also made me tapes, you know this is back in the day when we had tapes (laughs) and I used to play those tapes and listen to them before I went to sleep at night before a competition and it's all about getting that right thought process. What, what was on, can I ask what was on those tapes? What kind of things were you listening to? So a lot of it is about taking positives out of the training that you've been doing and then relating that to the competition you're about to go into. One of the big issues with skiing is that World Cup courses are bloody scary. So it's very easy to start having negative thoughts. Mm. Oh, shit, it's icy today. Oh, I don't Halfway down, it's so tough, it's so technical. That's all negative. That's no good, that's not going to help you. So don't think it. Mm. Much better to think, right, I've got to be really on it in that midsection. I know it's icy. Mm. So just need to come into it mm. right on top, right in the middle of my skis, really on it through that part, mm. and then out, and then let it run to the fifth, whatever. Yeah. It's interesting because we've had. Our last guest was uh, a completely different field um, and, you know, example, but similar sort of thing, listening to tapes, actually, there were parents' tapes and, you know, basically getting subliminal messages from that and (laughs) being influenced by that kind of stuff and then using that stuff to switch off the, the negative talk and reframe it positively and just 
you know, we had a conversation and you know, like we are now about really it's it's about operating at a higher level of consciousness. So un understanding that that negative talk can be there, it's always there, uh, and if we allow it to, it will influence us, but it doesn't have to. And that you can actually choose what to think. Be, you know, be conscious about what you think about and what you focus on to reinforce the positive, which is what you all say. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, I see it in all the parts of my life. Mm. And I talk about it often with other people. Um, I guess simply, you first of all, have to make the decision to do something with it, whatever it is, whether it's a business deal, whether it's an investment, whether it's something with the family, whatever it is. You've got to action it. Mm. Only you can do it. Mm. And then secondly, it's how you go about it. And a huge part of that is the thought that we put in and the attitude we take to how we do it. Mm. I mean, you often hear sports people saying, you know, I, I believed in this. I believed I could do it. You've got to believe. And if you don't, that in itself could end up in you not achieving mm. or mm. failing. Yeah. Well, I suppose if you believe, then you're giving yourself a chance of success. If you don't believe, you... You might as well stop now, eh? Yep. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend a company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, We've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organization, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. I was going to ask you anyway, and something you just said then, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it just prompted me to, to ask this question. So, you know, we, you, you've talked about kind of organising yourself and working out what you need to do. Um, but then there's the, the sort of execution side of it, the discipline of doing it day in, day out. You can know, well, knowing is one thing, but doing is, is something something else. Um, clearly, you've, you've demonstrated and, and been successful through actually following through and doing what you needed to do, executing it, having the discipline. Were you, I suppose, growing up in a household where your dad was a Marine, were you that kind of disciplined anyway? Or did was that something you learned when you went into the Army? You know, where did that, you know, I think the difference between, again, people who are, have an average level of success and someone who has a great level of success like yourself is you could both know it, but the difference might be one really executed it 
well, disciplined approach, and one not so much. Where did that come from for you? I would say a bit of both. And the Army can teach you a bit of discipline, taught me a bit of discipline, taught me a lot of things. Um, quite, it's, it's quite a good thing to do in many ways. But I think some of it, and I don't know how much, I wouldn't want to split it percentage-wise, uh, came from the way I grew up and also the school I went to, um, the opportunities that I had. To be able to do all the sports that I did and mm. um, to live in what, in many ways, very similar country to New Zealand, similar population, similar mm. sort of outlook to life and sport. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think you also have to uh, look at that. And from my perspective, I feel I was pretty blessed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. What if we. Um, Think you had a World Cup career after the second Olympics? Still, you were still skiing. No, I didn't. Or? So I, I finished the season and then I, I quit. Right. Yeah. And can I ask what what led to that decision? What was? Yeah, the reason it's a that? great question. So, there was a big part of me that thought, oh, I could go on and do another one, because <laughs> <laughs> I was twenty nine. Yeah. And you can ski till you're certainly early to, to mid-30s, um, if you do it. Uh, but really, there were, there were several issues. The first issue was you could spend another four years doing the same thing and not achieve anything more than I'd already achieved. Mm. Because you could be literally top three or top five in the world, but go to the Olympics and not finish in the top three or the top five. Mm. You know, that's just the way it is. Mm. Um, now, that's no reason not to do it. But when you then align that with the fact that mobile skiing had the highest injury rate of any Olympic sport, that was a big concern. And I'd done quite a lot of damage to my body. So I didn't just have my back injury. I'd broken several bones. I tore my patella tendon clean off my left kneecap. Um, yeah, and I remember sitting down with the Olympic doctor, who was a really nice guy, and I got on with him really well. And he said, "You done pretty well, son. You done pretty well. You achieved a lot. Now you've got a big decision to make. But I'm going to ask you: when you're forty or fifty, which you might not be able to imagine right now, when you were right, <laughs> he said, Do you want to be playing tennis, golf, running, swimming?'" And I thought, yeah, I do. He said, well, you need to take that into account because you're in pretty good shape right now. But you do another four years of mobile skiing, you might not be. And it might not be the issues you face when you're 32, 33. But it could be really tough issues when you're old. Mm. And I know a lot of sports are dealing with this at the moment. You know, rugby's dealing with this. Um, lots of contact sports have, have this sort of issue, but that was a big that was a big factor for mm -hmm. me. And then a third element, which was really influential in my decision, was the fact that I was twenty nine, and I had sacrificed a lot 
and combining the skiing with the army um, had meant that I had this fantastic experience. But there was a whole lot of other stuff I'd given up. And I knew I wanted to go on and do other stuff. I had made the decision I didn't want to stay in the army. I didn't want a full crew in the army. I wanted to go out and get into the commercial and business world. Um, and I already had a lot of friends who were my age, who were married, who were in careers, working in various sectors, doing all sorts of other things. And I, there was a big part of me that wanted to do other stuff. And when I combined all those things, it made it a much easier decision. And I don't think it's ever easy to walk away knowing that you've, you're still potentially going up world ranking. Um, but I don't have any regrets. I don't sit here and go, I wonder. Mm. So it was definitely the right decision you made. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Like you said, I think you said it was much easier. Didn't necessarily mean it was easy to make that kind of decision, but, but easier knowing that you... I don't think it's easy for anyone to walk away from a top-level sports career if mm. you're using the success. Mm. It's tough. So w what were you walking away... Well, I know what you were walking away from. What were you walking to? What was next for you after after skiing? Well, it was a bit like um, when I went to university and I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> but I thought, if I'm going into the world of business, I should go and do a business management course. So I did. I went to Westminster University and did a business management diploma. And I came out of that and I thought, well, and I'd been talking to a lot of folk. Networking is a wonderful thing. And I was, look, I was really lucky. Uh, one of the things that I was really pleased about and I'm quite proud of is that when I, when I retired from skiing, back then, um, uh, national sports governing bodies um, in the UK had to have one director on the board that was called an athletes director. And preferably they needed to be relatively recently retired. Um, and they would sit on the board. And that position was voted for by all the current athletes in the relevant British teams. And so all the athletes across all the different disciplines, across country and alpine and freestyle, voted for me and asked me to do it, which was a real honor and something that I, I, you know, I had no idea that they would do that. So I was sitting on um, the board of, uh, as I say, GB Snow Sports now, but British Ski Federation, and then I was asked to be um, on the British Olympic Executive, which was another really thing. And um, and so I was mixing and networking with some really interesting people, and one or two people who were involved with the Olympic movement who were very successful business people. And one of them um, was head of global marketing for Reebok. And he said, well, why don't you come and do a few months over in Boston in the world headquarters of Reebok? <laughs> you know, nothing else would be a good experience and see what you want to do. Mm. And what I said about opportunities, <laughs> making decisions. So I went, all right, do that. And I did it. Mm. Um, but there was no promise of a long-term job or anything. Mm. And I'll never forget, came back for Christmas and the chief executive of the British Olympic Association called me and he said, Hugh, 
Um, we've just won the rights to host the European Youth Olympics in a city called Bath, which I barely knew where it was. Mm. He said, um, well, how would you like to work for the British Olympic Association full-time rather than just be on the executive? You could come and be the operations and commercial manager for the event. And I thought, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> so I said yes to that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not that that was any issue for John, who was the guy at Reebok, because he said, oh, that's great, you've had a fantastic experience, here's another door opening, go for it. And so I went and did that. So, so can I ask, what were you doing at Reebok? Because obviously coming back you know, with, um, with the Olympic Association as a commercial manager, was there a connection between what you were doing at Reebok that led, led to the next opportunity? Not really. <laughs> So at Reebok, I was working on product marketing. What? Shoes, apparel, sports kit. Yeah. When I took the job on at the British Olympic Association, I didn't even really know what I was doing. I ended up uh, working on, so there was 10 sports involved with the uh, European Youth Olympics. And um, I was lazing all those different sports and helping them in the build-up to hosting probably the biggest event that they'd hosted, um, dealing with the venues in Bath and all sorts of stuff. And on the commercial side, I was dealing with the sponsorship, so sponsors that were supporting the event and the relationships with them and making sure they get what's called rights, which is basically mm -hmm. all the stuff that they're paying for in terms of signage and benefits um, to the relationship they have with the event. Yeah, mm. and, and it was all just a complete learning curve. And the chief executive of the British Olympic Association just thought, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> it sounds like a remake of that Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, where you keep saying yes to everything. Did you say yes to everything that came your way? Or no, not everything. a bit more selective? And I was still clear about stuff I didn't want to do. Yeah. And I remember... Um, I had, a, I had a couple of mates who left the army and, you know, they thought, I'm going to go into whatever, financial investment in the city of London. And, um, and I actually had a very good friend who did that. And um, some of those investment companies do take guys who are ex-army officers, that if you've got a good degree and you've done a post-grad, stuff like that, they, mm. they, they like that. And I spoke to a guy who placed people like that. But I very, I, I quickly thought, oh, that's not for me. You know, I don't want to do that. Mm. I mean, never mind the fact, and I think this is an important point, so I really want you to like what you talk about, the balance of life and work and lifestyle. I was very clear that the money didn't matter. So when I left the army, um, I mean, I went and worked for Reebok just on expenses. Mm. Was it? And when I took the role at the British Olympic Association, it would have been about two thirds of my salary in the army as a captain. And a lot of people would say, oh, "I can't do that. You've got to go the other way in your career." Mm. Um, mind you, I, I seem to keep doing it. <laughs> when I moved to New Zealand, it's not exactly a place you get huge salaries. I was so jumping forward quite a ways now. I, I. I had um, been working in 
London as a pretty senior director of a big international uh, sports marketing agency and um, was earning quite a lot of money. But when I moved to New Zealand, I took on a role as a commercial advisor for Sport New Zealand and, um, and really moved for my family because my wife's family are all here and we thought we'd give it a shot and moved over here. I was very pleased to get the role, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't a financial uh, career move at all. It didn't matter. That wasn't what it was about for me. And going back to the, the role with the British Olympic Association, for me, it was about doing something that I believed in, that I thought I would enjoy, uh, really enjoy, um, with, with good people and, and, and doing stuff that benefits thousands of people. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I never really, just never had that drive to go and work in the city for hundreds of thousands of pounds and work from eight in the morning to whenever at night and have a huge mortgage. Didn't fancy it. So what, what, you know, what did you, I mean, you've worked in broadcasting as well, probably to touch on that, but I mean, what, what, what was the opportunity in New Zealand and what was important to you? You know, why did you come to New Zealand? Like you said, maybe not for the, not for the money side of things. Um, so what was it that you were moving for? Yeah, as I say, really, my family. Well, and and um, I was married at the time, but we, we didn't have kids. I got married relatively late, and again, that's partly because of my mm. ski career. So I didn't end up getting married till I was 40. And my wife is uh, South African, but her um, family, her parents, her brother and her sister, had all emigrated here. Mm. And she'd been away from them for years. And we, we were living in England. And... Um, you know, she said to me, would, would I consider moving? And we'd been out on holiday and really liked the country. Excuse me. Importantly, I was at a point in my career where I, I could do it if I wanted to. And again, also important for me, from my side and my family side, sadly, both my parents had passed away um, in, in their mid to late 70s. Um, but while they had been living in Scotland, it would have been very hard for me to leave them when they were elderly mm -hmm. and... But the fact that that wasn't the case, I thought, again, there's an opportunity here and I can do it. I can make this happen. Mm. And I remember saying to her, I said, well, we'll go out on holiday again and I'll do a bit of networking. And we'll see what comes up. Mm. And then this rule came up at Sport New Zealand and mm. they, um, they contacted me when we were back in the UK and said, right, we'd be really keen for you to apply for the rule. We'd be really interested in you. And next thing we knew was... They offered me the, the job, and I said, "Okay, we'll do it." What was what was that role? Was that another commercial? So yeah, so role? I was commercial advisor to Sport New Zealand. Right. So the role was basically um, helping and advising uh, all the bodies and organisations that Sport New Zealand invest into for either high performance outcomes or community mm. sport outcomes. Mm. But so all the national bodies and um, both in terms of sport and recreation. When was your you were you've been involved with broadcasting with Sky BBC those kind of organisations? Um, when when did that take place and how did that come about? Yeah, it's quite funny. Um, yeah, another opportunity. 
So when, yes again. <laughs> when I was at the Lillehammer Olympics, um, Sky News, Sky Sports News, wanted to interview me. And um, so that, that's all done through the British Olympic team. So whoever the media person is, obviously they got in touch with me and said, would you do an interview on Sky Sports News? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so so um, I think we did it just in the media area of the, of the Olympic Village. We were staying in the Olympic Village. And um, so, you know, they did a short interview with me about moles. And, and I, I don't know, I tried to be just open and I tried to be a wee bit different. I mean, so many sports interviews are so boring. Mm. So I tried to make it a wee bit upbeat. Anyway, um, a couple of days later, this media person from the British Olympic team said, um, the head of Sky Sports News here <laughs> wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, well, I'll talk to him. So I went and spoke to him and he said, Hugh, really liked your interview. Really liked your interview. So we do a show in the UK um, called Talkback where they have guests, sporting guests. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was one, a half-hour show or whatever it was, but it's one of these shows where um, it's just kind of entertainment, but they focus the show around the guests and mm -hmm. talk about those sports and it's a bit of a chat show. Mm -hmm. And he said, we'd like, to do, we'd like to do it live from Lillehammer. We're going to set up a studio and we'd like you to be the guest. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's very nice of you. Uh, and I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't say no to that one. Now, I had... The sh they they were doing the show after I had competed, so it wasn't interrupting yeah. my, tr my training and focus. So, but they set it all up and and um, and they did the show, and it was great fun. Went really well, and and the guy who had contacted me, who I then found out he was actually very senior at Sky. <laughs> he was so he was head of Sky Sports News for the whole of the UK, and but he was also involved with the whole. Sky Sport. And um, so he invited me to go and see him when I got back to London. I went back to London and he said, would you like to do some <laughs> sports commentary and some punditry and stuff like that? Uh, it's quite funny because he said to me, he said, look, don't do this full time. You, know, you don't want to become a sports presenter. But, but we can give you some gigs. It'll be quite good. And then he introduced me to someone at Eurosport, and, and I ended up doing some stuff with Eurosport. And then the BBC saw me, and the BBC asked me to do stuff for them. And mm. That was pretty good. Yeah. Quite enjoyed working with the BBC. Um, and then, I can't remember, I, I missed a game somewhere along the way. I didn't, there was a Winter Games I didn't do. Uh, but, but you're meeting lots of folk who were doing stuff, and someone said to me, well, why did you not do... Whichever games I was at, something I was doing something else, and he said, oh, "You should talk to a guy who's head of um, the International Olympic Broadcast Services." So they're the central body that do all the cameras, all the way, you know, everything. Mm. And so they supply the feeds 
of every spore to every broadcaster. Right. And they can either have the feed clean if they want to use their own commentary and their own language, and you know, but they also supply an English feed. Mm. And I, I don't know, somewhere between 100 and 150 countries around the world take the English feed, which is supplied by OBS, Olympic Broadcast Service. Anyway, so again, yeah, just um, yeah, just called him up. I said, hey, <laughs> I'm here. I'm interested in doing uh, some freestyle commentary at the Olympics. And um, but he knew of me, and and he knew some of the guys that I knew very well that had worked with him. Mm. And so we had a few chats, and then he said, right, you come out and work for us at the Olympics. So I've done a bit of work with OBS as well, which has been great fun. But sadly, I didn't go to China earlier this year. But that's because of, that was COVID. I couldn't get, yeah, right. I could have gotten up there, but I couldn't get back. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, missed that one. But yeah, I've been doing that for over 20 years as well. So is that is that an ongoing <laughs> thing, do you think? Apart from COVID, obviously, is that something that you could, you, you think you might continue with or there's an opportunity to continue? I don't know whether there will be an opportunity to do Olympic level stuff. And I, I, I only want stuff so world champs or olympics and, mm. um i did do new zealand hosts the winter games here um and i i did that for uh, i don't know how many times i did it but um because it it used to be only every two years and now they do it every year um so i i, I did that really just as a bit of fun and mm. again because i was working with sport new zealand i knew them all i was advising on the games anyway so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah, you, you just never know. And having missed Beijing this time around, might not get a chance in four years' time. Mm. Who knows? Mm. So, you, you mentioned COVID. You mentioned Sport New Zealand. What, what's what's life been like and your career-wise in New Zealand for 12, 12 years? Yeah, so? twelve years. Yeah, how's how's that gone with your life plan, if you like? Um, well. The, when you say plan, seeing as how I never really planned to be here in New Zealand in the first place, um, yeah, I can't really say that any of it was part of a detailed plan. Mm. Um, and when I left Sport New Zealand, I'd certainly had enough of um, that role. I'd been with them six years, and it was a lot of fun, but again, I knew I wanted to go on and do something else. And I was keen to go back to private sector. Mm. And um, a few people had been asking me to do some contract work internationally. So I thought, fine, we'll do it. And also, um, Sport New Zealand, like most government ministries and agencies based in Wellington. We enjoyed Wellington, but kind of had enough of it. Even as a Scotsman, it's a bit windy for me. <laughs> and we loved it up here. This is where Kerry's family are all based. We loved it up here. So I thought, well, I'm just move on there. Mm. And... Um, but some of the work that I was being offered, which was great, I needed to be near an airport because it was mm -hmm. an Australian. Mm -hmm. There was a wee bit in Auckland, but you could drive that or fly that. But. So, um, and then I got a, a really good, um, a really good contract with Fairfax. So, um, Fairfax, both in Australia and here in New Zealand. So at the time, Fairfax owned stuff. Mm. Um, really, that was Fairfax, New Zealand. And both organizations had pretty big event portfolios, really good events. 
um, I mean, here in New Zealand, they, they owned Round the Bays in Auckland and um, uh, Night Noodle Markets and um, all sorts of stuff. They didn't promote it heavily as their events, so it was always promoting it as the title sponsor's event, if you like. Um, but it was a good portfolio and it was pretty profitable. And in Australia, much bigger and, and, and really big. And the guy who had gone in to head up the whole of the events portfolio in Australia is a, is a colleague and friend of mine for many years, former um, chief executive of IMG Australasia. IMG is one of the biggest sports agencies in the world. And he asked me to come in and be um, head of strategy for the New Zealand event team um, to align things here in New Zealand with what he was doing in Australia, but also work over in Australia. And it was a great gig. Mm. It was a great gig. And, um, and then again, as can happen in life, uh, something came right out the blue. So um, Fairfax was bought by Nine Media Group in Australia. And it, and it happened pretty quickly. And they made um, a few pretty big decisions. And two of the decisions they made that affected me was, one, they, they wanted to sell stuff. They wanted to sell Fairfax New Zealand. And two, they didn't want to continue the event space in either country. They'd been in events before, I think, and they, they just they didn't want to do it. Um, so you know, that rule came to an end which was a real shame because we'd developed a brilliant strategy and then they'd asked me to deliver it over the next three years. So um, that was a real shame. But these things happen. Mm. And again, you have to be flexible. Um, so the only problem with that was that I then quickly had the double whammy of that happened and then literally two months later, COVID happened. Mm. And so you're kind of going, gee, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And it, it, I had a tough six to eight months because um, I only had a little bit of contract work mm. and really wasn't sure what I was going to do. Yeah, and, and you're on the speaker circuit as well. That would have yeah, and that, and that's dried great. up, wouldn't it, with COVID? Um, yeah, most of it did. So all the in-person stuff dried up. But luckily... Um, managed to do a bit of online stuff and so that that helped a little bit mm. um, some companies did move towards uh, having a little bit of online coaching or or business speaking or whatever you want to call it um, especially with the new technology that's around mm. so three four years ago I'd never heard of zoom or teams or yeah any of that, and now use it all the time. Got to be flexible. Got to be adaptive. Yeah, well, you, you, that's, you keep using those words, flexible and, and adaptable, and, and that's, that's after this discussion, that's how I, I see you, Hugh. I mean, you've, you've adapted and you've kind of gone where the opportunity, not necessarily been pulled, but you've had opportunities and you've said yes and you've gone here and there, and it's taken you through a, well, you know, what seems like a pretty interesting career um what do you think you know next from where you are now what does the future look like you, you, you said there was no real plan a little bit 
bit earlier. Um, is there a plan for the future, or are you still, you know, looking at whatever opportunities come your way and making decisions that way? Um, yeah, I always do that. I always look at opportunities, and in fact, at the moment, and I work part time for the regional economic development agency here called Priority One, and. Um, that, that was an opportunity that came about because um, they have one senior relationship manager guy who, who deals with a lot of the business members mm. and but also works on some pretty big projects. And they, they were just getting more and more pressure from, um, from particularly project work and they, they needed somebody else at a senior level. Mm. But they didn't need somebody full-time. And I knew the chief executive as well as um, Mark, who's this uh, relationship manager guy. And so they said, hey, have you got a bit a bit of time? Would you like a part-time role? And that worked really well for me because mm. I did have a bit of time, but I, there was other stuff I wanted to do and focus on. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that part-time. And it's really nice to be doing uh, something that's where you've chosen to live. Uh, especially with not being able to uh, fly and work internationally. So I took that opportunity on, and, and the main project I'm working on is really exciting. So Taronga as a city is looking at um, potentially having a multi-purpose community stadium. And um, I've been managing the whole process of that, so pre-feasibility studies, feasibility study, mm. and we're in the middle of the business case now. Um, again, through an opportunity, found something that I really enjoy. If it ends up happening, I think it will be a huge benefit to the city and the region. So that gives it a real sense of worth. Mm. Um, is, is it what I plan to do? Is it what I chose to do? Well, maybe I chose once I kind of knew what was going to happen, but I didn't even knew that the stadium project would be a key part of the, mm. the work. Mm. Uh, but I certainly didn't plan it. And so when you ask me what do I think about from here, there are some things that I, I, I'm pretty clear about what I want to do. So I have been lucky enough to make a bit of money and, and invest that across a whole number of areas. Um, equity portfolios and I have a particular interest in industrial and commercial property uh, and I want to keep doing that, keep filling that. Um, uh, but in terms of other other work roles, again I know there's things I don't want to do <laughs> but there are things that I might well do that I don't even know about right now. Mm. So I'm not the kind of person who would go, I want to be a chief executive by the time I'm mm. this age. I want to do this. I want to. I'm very interested in the opportunity that world and society has presented it to us in, in, in the business environment. Mm. So I could bump into somebody who has started a, a company and there's maybe a really a real potential there, but no guarantees. I might be more interested in helping that company grow. 
Mm. Um, I'm reading, going and looking at a specific role in a more uh, established company or sector. Mm. Um, you just, yeah, you just don't know. But that's very much how I've ended up in, and what I enjoy doing. And again, I think that's hugely important. I, mm. I have to be, f I have to feel fulfilled in what I do. Yeah. I have to, um, I have to, yeah, enjoy every day. Yeah, it's funny. A few times you've kind of um, stolen my next question, and that was that was what it was going to be. I mean, you've, from the description of your career, it seems to be that you've you've enjoyed doing what you've done, and you've probably said yes to things that were a bit of a challenge and a bit of a out taking you out of your comfort zone and something new. And is that part of what you enjoy? Is, is that, you know, um, stepping into something new, taking a little bit of a risk? And, you know, is that for you where, like, the growth happens, learning, and, and thus enjoyment comes from? Yeah. Yeah, I just... I simply believe that we all get... We all get a bit of time. Mm. You get a shot. And... Um, you might as well give it all a go because mm. Mm. what I don't want to do, whether it's today or in five years or ten years or whenever, is to look back and go, oh, I wish I'd done that. Mm. Mm. You know, and I think sport's great for that because physically now I, you just couldn't compete internationally at mogul scheme. You couldn't do it. It's just, it's, you know, sadly, we, we age and your body couldn't do it. Mm. So it's no good being a 40-year-old going, oh, I, I wish I had skied internationally. It's too late. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I've tried to apply that to, to, <laughs> to everything mm. um, in life, work, mm. lifestyle. And... Um, and so, yeah, I do sit here and I don't really have any regrets. I, I, I genuinely don't think there's anything I look back at and, and, and think, oh, you know, I should have done that, but I didn't do that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm very open-minded to what's next. Yeah, that's great. What did, I, I've got a question I maybe should have asked a little bit earlier, so if it's all right with you, I'll just jump back very quickly to the um, Olympic side of things. Reaching that... that that pinnacle, if you like, of you know being an Olympic double Olympian. What did that do for you, from a character point of view, confidence point of view? What did that give you that maybe you didn't have before? That led to who you are today, you know. Well, I, I've got a real balanced view on that. So, while it was something I really personally wanted to achieve, and, and I think. We live in a world where it is a statement. Mm. It's a big statement. Mm. In fact, I remember being told, and some people might question this, but of all the symbols on earth, Coca-Cola, mm. the cross of Christianity, you know, none of them are recognized as much as Olympic rings around the world. Mm. So I remember when I was commentating for OBS in Korea four years ago, and, and we, you know, we had the brief, all the, OBS team had a briefing before um, 
before the, the whole thing kicked off. And uh, the boss guy was saying, right, and this, that, and the next thing. And he said, and just remember this. He said, doesn't matter what event you're working on, the chances are we're going to have two billion people watching. So don't cock up. <laughs> it's big. Mm. It's big. It's really yeah. big. And that's just mm. the world we live in. Um, so that, I mean, you mentioned confidence. How did it make me feel? Yeah, it, it gave me some confidence and belief in myself um, and, and a bit of a sense of achievement. But I balanced that with the fact that And this might sound odd, but equally, it's not that big a deal. I focused on sport, and I did quite well, and I went to a big event. So I try and balance it mm. with that perspective as well. It, it, it wasn't enough for me to go, well, that's it. I'm, you know, mm, I'm, mm. I'm Mr. Big. I'm an Olympian. Yeah, so is, is, it, is it a bigger deal that you set a goal for yourself and achieved it? Irrespective of whether it's the Olympics or whether it's, you know, what, what kind of it was you set a goal you know if we go back to the beginning here you, you said that you weren't necessarily fully supported by your parents and that's on you maybe almost a sense of and you didn't say this so I'm using these words and you can correct me if I'm wrong but almost a sense of yeah right um, type sort of scenario whether that's actually going to you know pan out for you or not which you know not many people get to the Olympics that's why it is a big deal and so I can understand why to a certain extent, some parents might have that kind of uh, opinion. But you were left to your own devices. You set yourself a goal. And you worked out how to achieve it. You created a... You, you don't like the word plan so much. Cause <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm sure you had a plan of what you needed to do to achieve it. And then your discipline, your execution of that, got you to where you needed to be and you achieved it. Twice. Yeah, and that matters. Yeah, that matters a lot. And, and I think particularly the fact, as you say, that it, it had to come from me. Um, look, there are lots of sports people who had very different journeys to the top. I don't know if you've read Agassiz's book. He was really pushed by his, by his parents. His dad built a tennis court out the back of his house in Las Vegas and made him hit a thousand tennis balls a day or something and he got one of these machines that fired tennis balls at him. You know, he was just pushed, 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 pushed. Um, you know, the, the, the Williams sisters in tennis and mm. uh, I think even Tiger Woods in golf was, was, was pushed very hard. So, the, you know, these are some really notable high-profile ones, but there's lots of them. But equally... Um, I'll never forget, there was a kid when I was 14, 15 in, um, in Scotland uh, skiing. There was a kid who uh, came from a very well-to-do family. Um, either his mother or his father was Swiss, I don't know. But his name was Per Gwalter, so not a very Scottish name. Mm. <laughs> um, but, but lived in, in Britain and skied um, in, in the British circuit. The Swiss wanted him as well, as far as I understand. And I mean, he was so good and so talented. You know, it was ridiculous. Mm. Um, but, but he didn't like it, I don't think. I, 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 I didn't get to know him very well, and I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I mean, you know, he would turn up 
not do any training, prepare, ski, do this, and then still win. Mm. But then he just disappeared. It's not, didn't do it. And as I said, it comes back to that you, you need a number of things. You need all of them. Um, and if you don't have the desire and you don't then have the commitment, then it ain't going to happen. Hugh, thank you very much for sharing your story with us today, and um, I appreciate it. I, I, I find that whole uh, story around you, you know, becoming an athlete and um, you know getting to the Olympics and what it took. I, I find that fascinating. I, I, I think there's a real kind of correlation between that and um, many other people who are successful in whatever they do. The ones who are really successful are the ones who've got all the things that you talked about, that personal drive, determination, organisation, discipline. Um, and so I, I appreciate you sharing that with us and, um, and, and I'm grateful for you coming in today and, and taking time to tell us your story. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. I'd really looked forward to catching up with Hugh. Having played and been okay at most sports I'd turned my hand to throughout my life, certainly a jack-of-all-trades rather than a master of any, I was interested to learn what it takes to turn an interest into a passion, and a passion into a sporting career, and an extremely successful one at that. In Hugh's case, two Olympic Games were at the pinnacle of his sporting career, in amongst a host of other achievements and accolades along the way. As you'll hopefully know by now if you've seen other episodes, this segment is about wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every interview, I look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation. And I summarise them here. The title of this episode was You Need to Take Opportunities. And I think there's wisdom in this quote from Hugh. Many people can go through life feeling like they've been hard done to that those around them who have done and achieved things or attained some elevated status, position or worth have somehow been lucky. And they are the unlucky ones. Hugh did talk about a time when he considered himself to be lucky, specifically when it came to being fit and ready for competitions as they came around throughout most of his career. As we know in sports, there's always a risk that we can work hard for a long time and miss an opportunity through injury or as we've been experiencing in the last few years with COVID illness too. That said, Hugh told us he sustained some injuries, serious ones at that, and ultimately these contributed to his decision to leave his sport early when he was on the rise as far as rankings were concerned. A decision that couldn't have been easy to make at that time. But, as he says now, was the right one. I don't want to focus on this word luck for a minute. I strongly believe that the definition of luck is preparation meeting opportunity. And listening to Hugh, there's no doubt he prepared, worked extremely hard and set himself goals and was committed to achieving them. He also, as per the title of this episode, told us he was always willing to look at any opportunity and he was always ready for the next one too. It's true that you can miss out on opportunities if you're ill-prepared for them, but equally, if you're prepared but not open to or looking for and willing to accept the opportunities that may come your way, likewise, you'll miss out. Hugh has adopted this to his whole life. He's never had a grand plan, maybe with the exception of getting to the Olympics, 
Other than that, he has somehow created opportunities that have come his way by being prepared, committed, determined, organised and disciplined. And he's been willing to take those opportunities to see what comes. As he stated, often that has meant being willing to take some sacrifices. And I think that that's an understated element of what has helped Hugh be successful, his willingness to make sacrifices. He said that money didn't matter, but he would do things that fulfilled him and that he would enjoy. After all, having to sacrifice things, and it often can be money, is what prevents most of us from stepping into the next adventure. But as is the case for Hugh, so far in his career, it usually works out. Maybe we needed to take a leaf out of Hugh's book and be a bit more Jim Carrey-like and say, yes, more often. I want to quantify that with other wisdom that Hugh shared with us. Just taking a punt, a risk, saying yes more often, doesn't mean that it will automatically work out and that we'll get a great life coming our way. What was clear from Hugh was that he had to work hard to achieve his goals and ambition. In spite of not necessarily having the support he maybe would have liked to have had in the early days from those closest to him. He talked about needing to have a number of things, not just some of them, but all of them in place in order to succeed. And those included drive, organisation and discipline, commitment, sacrifice, determination, and the ability to think strategically in respect of what would he would need to do to get there. And that included chunking down big goals into manageable pieces. In Hugh's words then, you've got to action it. Only you can do it, and you've got to believe. So for those of us who have a fear of failing, Hugh said, when referring to some of the things that didn't quite pan out the way that he would have liked, these things happen. You have to be flexible and adaptable. These wise words. The other thing that Hugh said was, you only get a bit of time, and you might as well give it all a go. How true that is. I hope you enjoyed listening to Hugh's story as much as I did, and hopefully you've been able to take something away that you can apply to some aspect of your life, work, and legacy. Use it. Share it with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching, and teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which of course is necessary if we are going to enhance our life's work. I hope you are happy, safe, and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that is a story worth retelling. Say yes more often. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.